Welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Mount Erebus plane crash, which was when an Air New Zealand flight on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica crashed into Mount Erebus, killing all those on board in 1979. So for those listeners who happen to be from New Zealand, like me, uh, you'll probably have heard about uh, the Erebus crash, which was an Air New Zealand flight, uh, mainly because it was, I think it's one of the only crashes Air New Zealand has ever had. And it was very key in the kind of public consciousness and it, and it impacted a lot of people within New Zealand at the time, uh, especially with New Zealand being such a small country. But if you are not from New Zealand, it might be something that you haven't heard of before. Uh, So it's a good one to dig into. So I'll talk a little bit about the kind of lead up to the flight, then what actually happened, and then a little bit more about the recovery and then the legacy, I guess, because it was, I mean, even up until now, Erebus is still in the news in New Zealand. So it is something that has has lasted and, and is still up for discussion. So there had been a lot of interest in Antarctica for a long time. A lot of people want to visit. I mean, I, I want to visit. I think it'd be very cool to go to Antarctica. But it became very clear that visiting Antarctica is obviously something that's quite tricky uh, and it's not, not the easiest place to go or to land. And so what they decided to do was do sightseeing trips. And what the, the idea with that is that the planes wouldn't land. They would just fly there and everyone would get a great view out the window and then fly back. Because New Zealand already had very close links with Antarctica, because it is very close, it's very, very south, um, as you all know by some of the very cold winds that come from there, both Air New Zealand and Qantas both launched uh, sightseeing trips in the 70s to go and and have that, that round-trip view. So these flights would leave Auckland and they would fly down to Antarctica. They would do a round trip and and do some sightseeing of of different bits in Antarctica and and kind of circle around in quite a few areas for a while. And then they would return, usually via Christchurch. So they usually stop in Christchurch to refuel and change the crew and stuff. And then they'd carry on back to Auckland. So the whole trip would take about 12 hours in total. And I guess it's it's key to note that planes back then were a lot more comfortable when you look at the pictures and stuff from these kinds of flights. Obviously, it, it looks a lot more enjoyable than doing it like a sightseeing trip in like an easy jet flight where there's ad- absolutely no leg room. So the planes were a lot more comfortable and they had a full, quite fancy meal service. And the trips usually had like an expert commentator to who would uh, speak about what the what people were seeing and what was what was going on. So usually um, like explorers that had been through Antarctica themselves or mountaineers, that kind of thing, who were who were quite familiar with the the snow and the ice. So these were launched in 1977 and they were really popular. Uh, lots of them took place uh, flying pretty regularly down to Antarctica. And they cost about $1,500 in today's values. Uh, so, you know, reasonable, pricey, but for, for you know, kind of a, a, an equivalent of almost like a holiday, quite reasonable. And they were generally considered quite, quite the success. So on the 28th of November 1979, flight NZ901 would take off bound for Antarctica. This plane was flown by Captain Jim Collins and they had a co-pilot Greg Casson and flight engineer Gordon Brooks. 
So this is going back quite a while because they actually had to have an engineer on the plane, which they obviously don't do that now. And it's important to note that neither of the pilots had flown to Antarctica before. Uh, so neither of them had done this route. The flight engineer had, but only only once. But both of the pilots were very experienced. Uh, they had done a lot of, they'd accrued a lot of hours themselves already. So they were determined to be fit for the flight. So in the days prior to the flight itself, the pilots and the ground staff uh, considered the route and they did a flight briefing about what this route would be. So obviously back in the 70s, there wasn't the kind of navigation systems that you would use today, which means that there was a lot more planning put into what routes the planes would follow and navigation relied a lot more on visual cues and seeing waypoints and also being very familiar with what the route was going to be. There was still electronic means which which assisted the pilots, but it was a lot more manual than it is today. They had a flight briefing and the route that had been approved and planned would take them to the McMurdo waypoint. And so McMurdo was like a base in Antarctica and that was the waypoint that they were aiming for. And in order to get to that waypoint, the flight would have to fly over Mount Erebus, which was on a a little island just off the coast of Antarctica. And because Mount Erebus is very high, it would mean that the plane would have to fly higher than 14,000 feet in order to get over it. But what happened was at the flight briefing, we assume now that it was due to a typo, a different route was presented. So the route that had been approved and planned went over Mount Erebus, but the route that was presented basically showed the flight going down like a large sound to the east of Mount Erebus. So as I said, Mount Erebus is on an island. So next to the island, there was basically a, a, a very large open patch of water. And what it would mean that by flying down that sound was that the plane could fly a lot lower because it obviously didn't have to go over a mountain. And because it is a sightseeing trip, the aim is to fly lower so that then they can get a better view and and, and enjoy themselves. And so that route of going down the sound was the route that the pilots thought they were going on. And that is the route that Captain Collins uh, planned and mapped the night before and the route which many pilots had been taking in the months previously. So that was generally the accepted route that had been going on. But somehow on the day, and we're not totally sure how this happened uh, even now the flight plan was changed back to that original route so on the ground the ground staff basically changed the coordinates back to the original route which took the plane over mount erebus and that route was given to the pilots and the pilots programmed that route the route over mount erebus into the plane's navigational systems but none of the crew were aware that the flight path had changed so all of the crew on, on board were thinking that they were doing this route down the sound to the east of Mount Erebus, but they weren't aware that the route they had been given was going over the top of Mount Erebus. And that was the flight path that they programmed into the plane's navigation systems. a.m. the plane took off from Auckland airport and it was due in Antarctica by about lunchtime 
And so as the plane flew, it made contact with air traffic control at several different waypoints, and that included uh, air traffic control in New Zealand, but then also air traffic control at the army bases in Antarctica. But at 12.30, the flight made contact with air traffic control on Antarctica itself and reported that they were 38 miles north of McMurdo. So they were definitely making their way down. They were about to, about to get into Antarctica itself. What happened then was that the flight then wasn't really heard of. So again, we're going back now to a time when flight engineering systems were, were a lot less and same with flight air traffic control systems and actually worked for quite a while in air traffic control not as an air traffic controller but on on air traffic control systems and the amount of technology that they have now is you know it's immense in terms of being able to track and see where flights are but back in at this time especially in an area which would have very low coverage of radar they were very much reliant on just flights checking in and flights basically reporting their position to the air traffic controllers to the bases and that meant that there could be longer amounts of time where a flight may not check in. So this meant by 3.30, the flight hadn't been heard of. And and it seemed by that point that that was, you know, quite a long amount of time. Uh, they tried to contact the plane several times just to, to see where it was and what was going on. But, but that was not successful. So they didn't really know what happened at this point by 3.30. Uh, so what the army bases nearby did was that they scrambled flights, helicopters, that kind of thing, to go out and, and have a look to see if they could see anything. And they scoured the area around the sound, around McMurdo, because they knew that was the last uh, waypoint that they had checked in at. But they couldn't, they, initially they couldn't find anything at all. So they kind of went around the sound, the route that they expected the plane to take, uh, couldn't find anything. It was only a few hours later that they expanded their search radius a lot wider to include Ross Island, which is the little island I mentioned that Mount Erebus was on, that then they finally spotted the debris and could see that the flight had indeed uh, crashed. So the flight, which was carrying 237 passengers and 20 crew, had crashed into Mount Erebus and that had immediately killed everyone on board. Uh, and this was the worst peacetime disaster for New Zealand, so the biggest loss of New Zealand life. Uh, and that's that continues to, to until today. So this is still the worst, worst peacetime disaster that New Zealand has ever had. Uh, in terms of the amount of New Zealanders who were on board and the amount of New Zealanders that were killed on that day. So, I mean, we'll talk a little bit further, a little bit later on about exactly the kind of causes, but it it became pretty clear that the pilots believed that they were flying down the McMurdo Sound. So they thought they were going to be flying down that route that they had been briefed on and that they had prepped for. So they thought they were flying down this sound, which had plenty of space, lots of, uh, lots of, room for them to fly at different levels and so if they were flying down that route they would have been flying at a lower altitude so that they could get under the cloud cover and so that they could get better views uh, but what happened was they were because they were following the coordinates and the waypoints that had been programmed in is that they were flying directly in the path of Mount Erebus and that by the time they knew that they were in that path, it was basically too late for them to do anything about it. Uh, and this was compounded by the fact that neither of them had done this route, neither of them had were aware of exactly what they had been looking for. 
and then there were potentially some other reasons as to why they didn't see what was going on and what was happening. So essentially, that mix up with the roots was the the key factor in terms of what 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 happened and and the fact that it then did crash into Erebus. So once uh, that that wreckage was found, uh, it was reported back to New Zealand and to Air New Zealand, who contacted and, and informed uh, the family and and all of that type of thing. It it became very clear very quickly that they wanted to recover the passengers. They wanted to re- to understand what had happened because you know I've told you a lot of stuff already about the the difference in routes, but it was only after the after the fact that anyone learned this. So at this point, they they had no idea what had caused this this crash to happen. They had no idea what ha- what had happened. So they immediately started an operation to to get there to get to the flight to understand what what had gone on and to try and recover uh, the passengers on board and so this was called operation overdue the recovery and it was heavily pushed for as well obviously new zealand wanted to, to do it but there were more than 20 japanese nationals also on the flight and so japan was very much pushing for them to get to that wreckage as soon as they could so the recovery team flew out there. It was a team of 25 and they were actually like a specialist disaster recovery crew, which had only just been rec- been created a few months prior in New Zealand. And so they were uh, flown out from New Zealand down to Antarctica and they stayed there for over 10 days, combing through the plane, trying to identify victims, trying to recover wreckage and recover evidence for what happened so they that team of 25 they worked they they stayed right next to the the area they pitched tents and they worked in 12-hour shifts and there's a lot of like first-hand reports of those people that did that recovery and it and it sounds very difficult uh, and it left a lot of them with a lot of lasting trauma the conditions were very difficult to work with because of obviously the fact that it's Antarctica and the there's very low temperatures, lots of snow, and just very changeable weather conditions in terms of storms and that type of thing. And in addition to that, where the crash happened was quite a quite a unstable area. So there was a lot of like crevasses and a lot of kind of dangerous area for them to be be within. So I won't go too much into the recovery because it's just not very pleasant. Um, but there are, like I said, there's a lot of accounts online. So if you did want to learn more about it, then then there is a lot of information out there. They were often very frequently cut off when they were doing that because of the weather. And they really had to make it through with very few supplies. Uh, but they were they were successful by the end of it. They uh, did recover recover the passengers and they did come back with a lot of evidence that would then be used in in terms of the investigation. So following the accident then, there were investigations into what happened and what had caused the crash. And the first one was done by the by New Zealand's Chief Inspector of Air Accidents, uh, a guy called Ron Chippendale. And he published his report six months later in June 1980 as to what he believed the causes of the accident were. And so what he determined was that the crash was a result of pilot error. And that was because he determined that the pilots had dropped below the altitude that they were approved for. 
and the pilots knew that they were in an area of uncertainty and they chose to continue flying at that lower level. So basically, Chippendale put all of the blame on the pilots themselves in terms of they just made the wrong decisions in terms of, of how high they flew and where they were and everything like that. So it basically blamed them and, and absolved any other parties of blame. He didn't have any emphasis on on the change of flight plans, which we've obviously covered, and stated that there was not really any limited visibility in terms of what was going on. So basically, it was purely pilot error. They didn't follow the the right plan. They they were flying at the wrong levels. They didn't look properly for, for landmarks or waypoints or anything like that. And that was what happened. However, this report wasn't particularly approved or appreciated by uh, the New Zealand public and so they demanded another inquest happen because they didn't really accept this this output and like I mentioned at the time I mean New Zealand's only what five million people now back in the 70s we're probably talking a lot you know we will be talking a lot less and so a flight of 260 everyone would know someone i mean even in, even in new zealand now i feel like you you meet anyone from new zealand and you can kind of like piece together like oh you know you went to school with like so and so sister like you can always find someone even now so back in that time i i guarantee that pretty much everyone would have either known or in some way known someone who had been on that flight so there was a real public outpouring following what had happened So the New Zealand government commissioned another report and this one was completed by Justice Peter Mahon. Mahon. I'm going to go with Mahon. Um, and that was published in April 1981, so almost a year after Chippendale's report. And Mahon had done a very thorough job in terms of really understanding all of like the different navigational systems, all of the different opinions, like the amount of research that went into this was immense. And basically in Mahon's report, he disagreed with Chippendale. So he cleared the pilots of blame and he instead blamed kind of the Air New Zealand's like admin and ground crew for changing the navigation and not informing the pilots of of the route that they had actually programmed in. And that was supported by another pilot who had been at the same briefing. So the other pilot who had been at that briefing had seen the the route that had been presented to them at that time and then compared it with the actual route that that they were given so they could kind of very clearly see that they were different. And the other thing that Mahon really looked at was this concept called sector whiteout. And the concept with this was that it was I won't be able to explain it very well, but have a look online for some pictures of it because it's really interesting. But basically the concept is it with it is that in in areas of snow, so in Antarctica, because of the different kind of light, you know, how light interacts with snow, what happens is if you're quite far away from the mountain, you can see that there's a mountain there. But the closer you get to it, because of this like trick of the light essentially it looks like you're just looking at a flat horizon and it's crazy like the photos that they've got which literally you you can like it's like mountain 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 
nothing so there's just you you think that there's literally nothing in front of you you think you're flying into into clear air and that was what Mahon attributed to the fact that the pilots didn't see anything or only did see something when they were like five seconds away from actually impacting with the mountain following this report it was very political at the time obviously there's a lot of you know big business especially with New Zealand and that kind of thing and so Air New Zealand, as part of his report, had been ordered to pay for that whole commission and had paid for other fees. So Air New Zealand disagreed with this report and disagreed with the fact that they needed to pay. And so they appealed the report to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal took up the case and they actually sided with Air New Zealand. So they they sided against Mahon. And following that, Mahon like, felt like his whole reputation had just been totally damaged and lost a lot of faith in himself so he immediately resigned and and gave up his role but he he did still believe in in his report and what he concluded so he then appealed to the privy council so not the case anymore but back in the 70s 80s uh new zealand was still very much the new zealand legal system was very much more linked to the UK legal system so you couldn't appeal above the court of appeal within New Zealand itself you had to then appeal to the UK and the Privy Council in the UK would then take up the case and so the Privy Council did take up the case and they again sided with New Zealand and did not support Mahon's conclusions and you know that at the time caused a lot of controversy there was a lot of of differing opinion in terms of these two reports and in terms of what had actually happened and 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 the causes of the incident. And, and this carried on for years. So we're talking all the 80s, all the 90s. It was only coming into very recent history now. So in 2008, you know, Justice Mahon was posthumously awarded the Memorial Award for Services to Air Traffic Safety for his thorough review. And it was only at that point that we really start to accept his view and, and the fact that it was correct. Uh, the accident report that he did would impact all reviews going forward. So the the level of detail and competence that he put into it would be used for you know all types of air traffic and um, air accident reports going forward. And it was it's only been in 2019, so we're talking 2 years ago, which was 40 years after the crash that Jacinda Ardern and uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand and the chair of Air New Zealand, the airline, both apologised for the accident, took responsibility for the crash and took responsibility for the hardship that it caused for those families who were affected, especially the families of like the pilots who had been given a lot of grief and a lot of... <laughs> they believed that their their partners had done the right thing and, and no one believed them. A really, really checkered history I guess in terms of what happened afterwards and it's still going on today it's still not totally clear in terms of exactly what what people believe and what they what the output is so following that uh no more flights to Antarctica with chartered um until 2013 uh when Qantas has started doing some flights assuming not now in the pandemic but uh they did start up again but Air New Zealand has very much not flown again to Antarctica. Again, like I said, with controversy, there's still no... There are several memorials to uh, the passengers. Uh, there is uh, some in Antarctica. 
at the Ross base, but there still isn't like an official big memorial in New Zealand. And even recently, they've been debating putting one in Auckland, but there's been a lot of pushback in terms of where it should be and all of that type of thing. And so still 40 years later, we still don't have a proper memorial to this incident, which like I said, is the worst peacetime incident in New Zealand's history. There's still nothing that they've put out there. What we learnt, and it's, it's as with everything we, we talk about, they're all very horrible and they, they are upsetting, but out of these incidents, out of these disasters, we learn and we improve. And I guarantee now that based on what happened, every single flight you take today is safer because of what happened and the the improvements they've made since that's gone on. So first of all, it really helped improve the technology around the ground proximity systems. And so that is around helping flights fly at lower levels. And that's essential today and really helps a lot with safety in terms of, of flights and, and where they are and, and how they uh, how they know how close they are to, to impact. And it also really helped with how pilots learn routes and how they get further training into where they're going, where they need to land, all of that type of thing. So it's really, it really pushed home the the key issues around like navigation and and directions and all that type of thing. And they really improved. And that then pushed the technology improvements that we have today in terms of simulators for flight routes. So even now, before a pilot will fly anywhere, they will be in the simulator, they will have done that route, you know, many times, so that they know exactly where they're flying, exactly what's going on, uh, which obviously just wasn't really available at all back in those days. And improved navigational systems, and, and these really start, had you know, they had to start somewhere, and Erebus really sparked that drive towards these better navigational systems and better uh, satellite and and all of that type of thing so that is hopefully very hard now for a plane to get lost and i mean we'll maybe do the malaysia airlines flight one day soon which seems mad that a plane can get lost in in recent history but you know that is one one plane out of how many thousands hundreds of thousands millions that fly every year that ability now to track and to really understand navigation has just been so key. And Erebus really helped to spark that. Alongside that, the crash also helped that understanding of sector whiteout that I mentioned. And that's been very important, uh, especially for those flying near or over polar regions and just anywhere that is pretty covered in snow. So, you know, any kind of northern or southern latitudes that uh, really need need that information. So, and that has been a real key key area where safety has improved. I found it really fascinating looking into Erebus because it's something that I have heard of growing up there and something that if you're in New Zealand, you you know Erebus and you know what happened, but I didn't really know what happened, if you know what I mean. And I didn't really understand the controversy and, and what what went on after the incident. And so... I think it is really important for us to reflect back on it, to understand exactly what did happen and then to truly appreciate the sacrifices that that happened here, but then have made all of us safer. You know, all all of us now have benefited and, and can travel a lot more freely because of this. 
So yes, I will put the references in the show notes. A couple that I wanted to call out. There is an excellent website called uh, erebus.co.nz and that has so much information about Erebus, like just huge like numbers of original documentation, photos, like it has both the Chippendale report and the Mayhem report in full. It has, it just has literally everything. It has lots of accounts of the recovery, uh, lots of interviews, everything like that. It is truly a treasure trove of information about this. So if you are interested, definitely go to erebus.co.nz and have a read of all of the information that is there. Um, and I do recommend going to, to look at the photos to really understand it, especially the sector whiteout photos are on there as well. Uh, so it is worth a, a read. The other thing is that if you are interested in this um, and want to dig in more than in just half an hour, there is a podcast series called White Silence. And that is from Stuff slash RNZ. Stuff being one of the big new sites in New Zealand, if people didn't know that. Um, so it is a it is a combined podcast series of six episodes and it, it has a lot of interviews with uh, key people at the time, prime ministers, uh, like the families of the pilots, all of that type of thing. And that goes into huge, uh, more, more amounts of detail than I can cover in one podcast. So it's worth a listen if you are, yeah, like I say, if you're interested in, in this incident. So thank you very much for listening. Oh, time for all the things that I normally say. Um, so please do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. I have been posting a lot more there and putting more kind of behind the scenes and also doing a lot more in terms of getting getting your ideas in terms of, of what episodes to do and when. Please do uh, follow and subscribe. So if you're on Spotify, hit the follow button. That really helps me. And um, if you're on if you're on iTunes, hit subscribe and leave a review. That'd be really appreciated. And as always, please get back to me with your feedback. Get back to me with your uh, ideas for future episodes. And you can also email me at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. <laughs>